Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Resilient Faith. That is the title of our Lent 2021 sermon series. In this series, we are exploring what it looks like to deepen our trust in Christ and grow our faith to withstand the trials, the challenges, and the storms of life, to develop the grit and the adaptability and the resilience of our Lord Jesus. Last Sunday, we began our series by looking at some of the metaphors that the scriptures use to describe how God shapes us and shapes our faith through the trials and the hardships. Metaphors like metallurgy, you know, purifying gold, forging metals with fire, but also like clay in the hands of the potter and the wilderness, which is what Jesus experienced out in the desert and what we give attention to during Lent. Therefore, I invited us to see and embrace our own wilderness as an opportunity to build character, to grow our endurance, and to thrive on the other side of it all. In the first sermon, we began with Mark's version of Jesus being tested in the wilderness. This morning, I'd like to remain in the wilderness with Jesus, but look at it from Matthew's account in a message I've entitled, Resistance Builds Resilience. Resistance Builds Resilience. You can turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, if you like, and read along with me, or you can just listen as I read it for you. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, And angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is happening here? Uh, There's a lot that can be said about the temptations of Jesus. Why three? Why these three? It's It's important to unpack those. Because it gets the very heart of this encounter, which is in the question that the tempter asks, If you are the Son of God... You see, for Jesus, this testing is about his identity as God's son. 
and him, him deciding what sort of Messiah that he's going to be. And if you tune in regularly here at Grantham, you know that I've addressed the nature and the aim of these temptations plenty in the past few years. So I'm not going to do that in this message. Rather, I'd like us to think more broadly about how temptation works, how it comes to us, how Satan or the devil is involved in that, and how we can resist evil and build a resilient faith. Because you won't grow resilient faith if you don't resist evil. So then, what is temptation and where does it come from? Let's start there by returning to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, look at this, when tempted, when you are being invited to do wrong. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. James is saying, no one should say, and Greek literally means, stop saying. Don't make this about God. Remember, Adam and Eve did that. They, They played the blame game. And God has not and does not experience sin as we do. We should remember this. So temptation isn't appealing to him in the same way it is to us. And let's be clear, God may test us for the strengthening of faith, as we saw in our Advent series, but he does not tempt us to sin. Just recall the Lord's Prayer when we say the words, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, God, keep me from giving in to the temptations that come. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Dragged away and enticed. Listen to this. This is two verbs used to describe luring and trapping of animals. But in this case, James wants us to know that we're our own worst enemy. Of course, the Bible speaks of three enemies. We should be clear about that. It speaks of the world being an enemy, our own flesh being an enemy, and the devil. And we must know how to resist each of them if we're to overcome in faith and have resilient faith. Now, Satan is a real tempter, to be sure. We see that in Matthew chapter 4, and we'll see that in a moment in James chapter 4. But he cannot force us to sin and is therefore no excuse for our sinful behavior. Again, the responsibility is ours. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What a terrible but effective birthing image of how sin comes to be. Notice, sin is personified and is viewed as beginning in the mind, which I believe is what is actually happening to Jesus in the wilderness. His dialogue with the devil and his experience with temptation is happening in his mind. The same thing happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, and it still happens to us in the same way. And the devil knows this, and he knows how sin works. Get into a person's mind, right? Get on the battlefield of the mind and plant the seeds that grow into sin. And if that's not resisted, it will give birth to sin. That's why Jewish rabbis describe temptation and sin in agricultural terms. The mind was like a a plowed garden ready for seed. And a person's eyes and ears were the windows of the mind. What we think about and dwell on develops into what we do. I mean, that's kind of scary, right? There's, There's neuroscience behind this. That's why the Bible tells us to 
not only guard our hearts, but also to guard our minds. Again, pay attention to what James is emphasizing here in this passage. Temptation isn't from God, and if it leads to sin, it's ultimately no one's fault but your own. I mean, even Led Zeppelin, when Robert Plant sang those words, it's nobody's fault but mine, (laughs) you know, he spoke the truth. It spoke the truth. It's nobody's fault but our own. However, having said that, we would be wise not to underestimate the wiles and the attacks of the devil, which is why only a few chapters later, James says this. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Question, how can you resist the devil if you don't believe he exists? Barna did a study about 10 years ago that found that over 40% of Christians in America don't believe that the devil is a real fallen angelic being, but merely a symbol of evil. I don't know where the numbers are today, but I suspect an even larger number of folks scoff at the idea of Satan and demons in the spirit of scientism, that is, believing that science answers all of the important questions about life, and therefore live without ever giving any thought to the reality of their presence, of their power, and their influence in our lives and in our church. And let me say, folks, if we do this, we do it at our own peril. For starters, if you disbelieve in the reality of Satan, then you do not affirm the very worldview of Jesus. And you must conclude that a large portion of his ministry, which were exorcisms, healing, and deliverance, was a bunch of superstitious backwater hooey. I mean, I don't know how else you will will do this. Deny the existence of Satan and demons and, and their influence in our lives but to conclude that Jesus just didn't know what we know today. And in rejecting this historic Christian belief in the devil because now we know better, you undermine the entire foundation of the New Testament cosmic narrative and you deny a central aspect of the work of Christ in our lives and on the cross, which is what the Christus Victor Uh, understanding of the atonement is all about, that Jesus defeated Satan and the powers of evil on the cross. In his book on the devil, historian Jeffrey Burton Russell writes these words. He says, the devil is not a peripheral concept that can be easily discarded without doing violence to the essence of Christianity. He stands at the center of the New Testament teaching that the kingdom of God is at war with and is it now at last defeating the kingdom of the devil. If we had the time, I could reference a whole slew of scriptures that reveal that what Russell is saying is true. Instead, I encourage you to to look at this for yourself. And if you need a place to begin, just start reading the Gospel of Mark and make a note of how many times the devil and demons are referenced throughout. And then give this verse serious thought. In 1 John 3, verse 8, John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 
So just because this aspect of the Christian worldview doesn't jive with the narrow scientism of, let's say, a Richard Dawkins or a Neil deGrasse Tyson, who want to say that all there is is what science reveals and can make sense for us, at the neglect of theology, of philosophy, of anthropology, of history and metaphysics, doesn't mean it's not real, folks. And it certainly doesn't mean that disciples of Jesus get to so easily dismiss what is central, the central teaching of the New Testament and what our own Lord taught and practiced. Because remember, this is not about passing some theological purity test or making sure your beliefs are in line with our denomination or even what is considered orthodox Christianity. No, it's about being able to resist our real enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's not about belief for belief's sake. It's about accepting the spiritual reality so that we might live victoriously in our earthly reality. That is why the Apostle Paul wrote this to the believers in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, Paul wrote, Finally, be strong in the Lord in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What is Paul saying? Or maybe the better question is, what would he say to us? I think he'd say, church, you have problems that can't be solved by simply articulating the gospel more clearly and saying, look at us, we're a different church. In fact, saying that we want to be a church that leads others to the God who looks like Jesus will bring on even more opposition from the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Again, Paul might say, you have problems that can't be solved by human ingenuity, by your degrees, by your professional backgrounds or, or your business meetings. And your societal problems, they can't be solved by, entirely anyways by creating new laws and policies or educating or shaming the ignorant. You're not going to think your way out of these troubles, church. And you're not going to vote evil out in the kingdom of God in every few years. It doesn't work that way. I think you'd say, church, you're ultimately not going to emerge and break free from your troubles by just using your mind, but rather by getting on your knees and engaging in intercessory devil-stopping prayer. And your real enemies, the ones you should be resisting, you can't see them. And so you can't resist them the way you do humans. Instead, you have to fight a spiritual battle using spiritual weapons. This is what I hear Paul saying. And I know that this spiritual warfare worldview seems strange to us post-enlightenment Westerners, some of which think we, we know better than, than those archaic things that the, these backwater people used to believe. But not so fast, folks. Not so fast. I like this quote from Greg Boyd's book, God at War, The Bible in Spiritual Conflict. He wrote, One is hard-pressed to find any culture prior to or contemporary with our own that does not assume something like this spiritual warfare perspective. 
From a cross-cultural perspective, the insight that the cosmos is teeming with spiritual beings whose behavior can and does benefit or harm us is simply common sense. It is Westerners who are the oddballs for thinking that the only free agents who influence other people and things are humans. So based on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, I think Paul would say to Christians living in our postmodern, anti-supernatural, materialistic, pull-yourselves-up-by-your-own-bootstraps, you're all you've got. You want to build a resilient faith? Then learn to fight the real battle by resisting evil through prayer. Because you can't do this without God's help. You can't build the church without God's help. You can't overcome struggles and trials and trauma in your past without God's help. Recognize that there is a spiritual evil component that creates strongholds and doesn't want to let us go. Pastor David, all this talk about resisting and warfare, aren't we Anabaptists? And doesn't the New Testament teach that fighting isn't something Christians ought to be doing? Yes, it's true that Christ has called us not to resist by using physical violence. When Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist an evildoer. He literally meant do not respond with tit for tat, eye for eye. So it's a militaristic term with violence. Don't respond that way. Don't resist that way. Sure. But as we see in the wilderness and the rest of the New Testament, we are being called to follow in the way of Jesus by putting on spiritual armor for a spiritual battle. In his book, A Theology of the Dark Side, you Star Wars fans should like that title, Nigel Goring Wright says this, the church of Jesus Christ is the church militant. Now, normally we would, you know, our feathers would get ruffled at hearing something like this, but listen to what Wright says. How are we militant? We are engaged in spiritual conflict and need to be equipped for this task. To be sure, the conflict is like no other form of battle and the weapons quite different from any other weapons. We must reimagine our notions of warfare. It would be a pity if embarrassment at the military language or misplaced political correctness were to deprive us of the challenge. Challenge to do this, church. Folks, I literally pray for you. I pray that you will join me in doing this. You know me, I don't say this often, but I believe that God has revealed to me that the good future God has for Grantham Church, which involves emerging and breaking free, not only from the trials of this past year, but also from those unseen agents that have been around for much longer, fueling cynicism and mistrust, and that stir up past traumas and and other hidden sins that quench the spirit, will only happen by us humbling ourselves before God in prayer, as James said, and resisting the devil. Only then will he flee, and only then will God come near to us in his power. So I submit to you, brothers and sisters, we'll only move forward together by us choosing to be prayer warriors who intercede for others and rebuke the spiritual darkness that seeks to take up residence in our hearts and in hearts that give it harbor. What does that look like? It looks like 
a manifestation of anger and cynicism and bitterness and mistrust and suspicion and pride and scapegoating. This is the evidence that evil is residing and finding safe harbor in our hearts. It's visible to those who have eyes to see it. Therefore, let us exorcise these things. Let's call them out. Let's cast them out in the name of Jesus by resisting the enemy in prayer. And if you're still a little skeptical of the devil and spiritual warfare, I highly recommend a book by a Christian psychologist named Richard Beck. He writes this in his book, Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted. He said, in the face of doubts and disenchantment, we need a vision of spiritual resistance and struggle that energizes our faith in the face of pain and suffering. To save our faith, we must embrace spiritual warfare. To save our faith, we must join the resistance. And I think there are several ways that we can live lives of resistance. That is, build resistance into our lives so that resistance can build resilience. Think about this with me. Based on the life of Christ and what we observe from the New Testament, here are three basic things that we can do to resist evil and build resilient faith. You can resist evil and build resilient faith by practicing the following. Number one, religious rhythms and routines. We've talked a lot about this at Grantham. Religious rhythms and routines. Remember the functional definition of religion that we've been using here at our church. We said that religion is about practices of prayer, of scripture reading, of sacrament, of liturgies built into our lives and into our church. Things handed down to us so that we be properly formed in worship. As I've said before, God doesn't need our religion. We do. We need it. We are liturgical beings. And, and we have to have more than, than just Netflix and our smartphone and, and the news. These things and more constantly shape us. And if we don't take charge and we're not intentional about the Christian liturgies that are at work and in a place, the, the spiritual rhythms and routines incorporate into our lives, then the world will shape us. What we think about constantly, what we do over and over again, our habits, they're what shape us, for better or worse. And Jesus knew this, which is why he, he wasn't just spiritual, he was also religious. How is he religious? Well, think about it. He was raised by pious parents, educated in Torah and in the Jewish faith at the synagogue in Nazareth. He took pilgrimages to Jerusalem for various feasts. He followed the Jewish religious calendar. He worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem every Passover. He faithfully observed the Sabbath and attended the local synagogue. He recited the Hebrew Shema, probably daily. He had other religious practices. He fasted, he tithed, he prayed two to three times a day. He wore a prayer shawl and tassels, which was common among rabbis. Why do we want to be more religious and not less? Because that's the example that Jesus gave us. And it's clear that his religious routines were part of his resistance to evil and the competing liturgies of the world. Number two, how can we resist evil and build resilient faith? By learning to say no to temptation. Jesus shows us this in response to Satan in the wilderness. 
With each temptation, Christ had a no response in the form of a memorized verse of Scripture. Don't miss that. What temptation, when temptation came to Jesus, you see, and the devil was lurking in Jesus' thoughts as he was weak and vulnerable from fasting and being in isolation, the Lord had so saturated his mind in God's truth that it immediately came to mind when he was tested. And in that recitation of God's inspired words, Jesus said no. And he closed the doors and the windows that the enemy attempted to climb in through to make himself at home. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-10 through 10 that says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Just as the angels came and attended Jesus, comforting him, at the end of his trial, the Lord will do the same for you, church. But you must resist and overcome with the grace God gives you. As the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And finally, number three, how do we resist evil and build resilient faith? By using prayer as a spiritual weapon. Folks, I believe that many Christians do not pray as passionately as they could because they don't see how it can make any significant difference in their lives. I mean, if we really believe that it could, that it could shape things, we would pray more. But for many, prayer is just some self-help, therapeutic, mind-calming spiritual practice. But as we've heard today, it's, it's much more than that for us who are Christians. You see, we get to shape the future with our prayers. We get to choose our own adventure with our prayers. We have the opportunity to join with God in bringing the kingdom through our prayers. For growing Grantham Church through our prayers. For growing in grace and building resilient faith through our prayers. And we have a spiritual weapon in prayer Jesus understood this, and that's why he prayed all the time. As we can see from the Gospels, Jesus prayed early in the morning. He prayed late in the evening. He prayed spontaneous prayers of supplication to the Father, asking for God's help. He used the Psalms, as the Jewish prayer and songbook, to pray written prayers. He prayed in private. He prayed in public. He prayed in resistance to evil. Jesus prayed all the time, and he invites us to do the same. You see, I, I get this image that we, like soldiers on the front lines, taking fire from the enemy and calling for airstrikes from on high, for the coordinates that need to be hit on the enemy. We are soldiers of the cross. We are followers of the Lamb who've defeated the devil with two sticks. And we believe that our impulse to fight, and we all have it, how do, we, how do we use it? What do we do with it? We fight in prayer. We take that impulse and we channel it in to prayer. 
Why? Because when we pray, things change. And when we don't pray, they don't change. That is why Paul closes his thoughts on putting on the armor of God and fighting the spiritual battle with these words. Ephesians 6 verse 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Church, as we bring this message to a close and we respond to what we've heard today, I want to invite you to ask yourself, what ways do I need to be more intentional in prayer against the enemy? Think about this in your personal life. What ways do you need to be more in prayer in resisting temptation, in saying no, in rejecting the flesh, and saying yes to God's will in the Spirit? What ways do you need to be more intentional in prayer against the enemy with your family, for your children, for your grandchildren? How do you need to call upon God and reach across the curtain and grab a hold and join hands with the spiritual realm, with the heavenly realms, and say yes to the kingdom come in your family's life? What about for your neighbors? And what about for your enemies? As Satan himself uses your enemies to exploit them and take advantage of them to cause you harm. How can you call upon God in prayer to resist evil? And to ask the Lord to help them. And also, how can you be more intentional in prayer for our country? For leaders and politicians? We are, we're so quick to post things and post our thoughts and opinions to social media. But how quick are we to go to God in prayer about the things that concern us the most? Folks, I will take a small group of prayer warriors who go to God on their knees in prayer, in devil-stomping prayer for, their, for themselves, for their family, for their neighbors, for their church, and for this country over any so-called social justice warriors, over anyone who's a good writer, a good speaker, an author, a movement leader of any kind. I'll take those prayer warriors over all the others because that's how we change the world. And that's not to create some false dichotomy between doing some of those other things. But folks, without prayer, without fighting the spiritual battle, it's a losing battle. Friends, do you want a resilient faith? Do you want a resilient church? And let's use prayer as a spiritual weapon and a tool of resistance that will build resilience in us and prompt angels to come to our aid. As James said, church, I say to us, humble yourself before God. You can't do this on your own. Grantham can't be what God has called her to be on our own. So humble yourself, 
Resist the evil one. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he will draw near to our church for the glory of his kingdom.